How you guys doing today? Doing good. Feels like summer. I think you're on to something. It's hot and, and that's nice. Um, I'm excited to speak to you guys this morning. Um, I want to start off, well, before I get uh, to that thing, I wanted to share one more praise report. Um, we had an awesome thing happen um, for our brother, uh, Don Cochran. We've been praying for him and keeping us in his prayers. And uh, a lot of you guys know that he had a surgery um, on Monday. And it was kind of a, it was, it was a, it was an all or nothing kind of surgery. Um, you know, he has cancer or had cancer and, um, he, uh, was going in there like, we need to get this removed, but it's a very risky surgery. And on Monday they, they told him, um, that he really, he only, they were only giving him a 25% chance of surviving the surgery. And, uh, Don, he's such an inspiration to me even because, um, because, because of his calmness and his trust in the Lord, it really reminded me of the apostle Paul when he talks about, um, being okay with, with, with dying because he knows he's going to be with the Lord. And he says, it's better. The Lord says it's better for me to remain here with you than, than that's what I'm going to do. But either way I win. That was kind of Paul's attitude. And really, as you talked to Don, you like had, that same sense, you know, that's something that I aspire to have that trust, but I've never been tested, you know, in that kind of way. And so the surgery was supposed to take um, about eight hours, and they told Joni, like, we'll come out after three and kind of give you an update on how it's going. And um, three hours had passed, and they hadn't heard anything, and they were getting nervous, and the doctor came out after about four hours. And she said, we are done with the surgery. Everything went amazingly. One of the things that, one of the tumors that we were most concerned about, we just had to do like one little cut and it was easy to do. And that is a miracle. So praise God. And we we can clap. Yeah. And so that, that's a really awesome thing. He wanted me to share with that, share that with you guys. And, um, before I get started, one other thing that I have to confess to you, you know, saying, uh, this is like pastoral confession time. You know, sometimes people confess something to a pastor in private. We in turn do it publicly to everyone on a Sunday morning. Um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my daughter, uh, you know, she's three. Um, my wife went to pick her up from the nursery and the wor- nursery workers were like, Hey, just, so you know, um, Everly was like chasing around other kids and saying, get back here, you little turd. <laughs> and Hannah just started laughing or whatever. And, uh, as, but then she got the sense that it was like, oh no, you're telling me this because my kid probably shouldn't chase around other kids and call them turds. And, and, and so she, she told me that and I was like, oh brother. Okay. Um, and then a couple days later, um, we had some friends over to our house, you know, one of the friends that was aware of the situation, I guess you want to call it, I don't know. Um, and, and Hannah, Hannah called one of our kids a turd and they're like, oh, that's where she got it from. And Hannah's like, do I say that? And I was like, of course you say that. You say that all the time. Like, I thought you were aware of this when you were telling me this. She was like, no, I didn't, I didn't realize that. And so, um, so we had the conversation, like, maybe not. You know, I don't want someone, you know, to to be offended, especially pastor's kid. Uh, 
doing that. And uh, so we're like, maybe not turd. Well, then that was like quickly replaced with punk because we call we call our dog a little punk. Like whenever he gets out the front door, we're like, oh, you punk, get back here, you know. And so and then uh, she was calling Landon a little punk the next day. And we're like, OK, no, oh, no, you know, so we're at the stage where it's like, hmm, you do whatever I do and say whatever I say. So um so you can blame us and stuff for that happening. But, uh, yeah. So if your kid picked up the word turd, my bad. Okay. So um, we are in the midst of our summer school series. We just started this last week. And um, the idea of summer school is that we, we are focusing in on, on uh, standalone uh, sermons that we can talk about where we talk about important Christian uh, truths that maybe need to be revisited, maybe need to be reexamined, or or maybe learned for the first time. You know, summer school, um, like real summer school, it can be either about uh, getting ahead, like getting ahead of schedule, or catching up. Right, and I've been on both sides of that uh, before. You know, I'm in classes right now. I'm trying to get my master's. And I'm, I'm getting ahead. I want to be done by this spring. And so I'm in classes. And I'll, I'll, I'll just brag a little bit. I had straight A's last semester, which, which for me, for me that, that's an accomplishment. I know there's you people, some of you people, like my wife, that that's just a given that you would get straight A's. But that has not always been my story and stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that. And um Hence, being on the other side of, of summer school sometimes, you know. Um, I How many, like, you've taken Spanish or something in high school or, or college? Um, I began my Spanish journey in, like, ninth grade and never really learned it in any meaningful way at all. Yeah? I, I, I faked my way through it. Uh, a few times, you know, I don't think I ever scored high, higher than a C. Kids, don't, you know, cover your ears, d- don't do this. Um, but I just, you know, knew enough, like, knew enough on the tests to, like, get by to, like, the next semester or, you know, and so I did this through college. Then I went, I mean, did this through high school. And then in college, uh, my degree was a Bachelor of Arts, so they, like, required uh, three years of language. And so I was like, well, okay, here we go. So I even, like, I went to Spanish 101 and feeling, like, there's a 100 if you know nothing about Spanish. And then there's 101 if you know some. And I was at the 101, and I was thinking to myself, like, this might be a good chance to, like, hit the restart button. So I, like, talked to the professor, and I was like, I think I'm going to switch to 100. He was like, you're fine, you're fine, don't worry about it. And I was like, okay. And what I'm... When a professor tells you to stay in a class, what are you supposed to do? So I'm like, okay. Uh, so I squeaked by 101, made it into 102, squeaked by. Then 203 came along, and that was going to be my last Spanish that I ever needed to do ever again. And that was the one that I did not pass. And so I'm like, what? I can't just retake it because I know nothing. I know, like, they finally called my bluff and realized, oh, this kid knows no Spanish at all. So what am I supposed to do? Like, uh, so they offer 
an alternative for kids like me um, where you can go on a trip to Puerto Rico uh, and get credit for that. So I, knowing my fate, uh, grabbed, a, grabbed a flyer for that like early on in the, in the school year, and I was like, definitely going to have to go on this. I have no other hope of graduating. So I grabbed the flyer, and then when summer rolled around, I like bought my plane tickets, and... Um, uh, one morning, had my roommate drop me off at the airport, and I flew. I had a layover in Houston. I flew to Houston, and while I'm, like, sitting waiting, waiting for my uh, plane to board, I, like, my roommate, uh, my phone goes off, and it's my roommate calling me. And I, like, pull out my phone, and I'm like, hey, Brian, what's going on? And the voice that came out of the other end of the phone was not my roommate, Brian. It was my professor of Spanish. Carlos Chale, and I was like, hold on, <laughs> how are you calling me from my roommate's phone? And what happened is my roommate was also taking some summer classes, was at ORU, saw the professor walking by and said, hey, Chale, aren't you supposed to be in Puerto Rico today? And he goes, no, man, the trip's next week. <clears throat> and so here I am on the phone and and the professor's like, w where are you? And I was like, oh, I'm in Houston. And he was like, trip's next week. And I was like, what? It's like, the trip is next week. And I just, I said, hold on a second. I got to think. And I just like sat down. And I was like, the trip's next week. I'm in Houston. And it, like, apparently at some point, that flyer I grabbed was changed, and they, they changed the week, and I never got a new flyer. So here I am. Uh, I flew to Houston, had some Wendy's, and flew back to Tulsa. And um, I asked my boss, I was like, In, do you think I could actually get off next week and not this week? You know. And so that's the moral of the story, kids, is do your homework. Um, you might be halfway to another country on accident, and you never know. Um, but yeah, summer school. So it can either be about you know getting getting ahead or, or catching up. Um, and so, you know, there's things you know in in Christianity that that maybe maybe we miss that day and it never occurred to us, but they are fundamental and they're so important that that we talk about. And so today, um, the letter of the day, think like Sesame Street, is I, and I stands for identity. So we're going to be talking about identity. And to do this, um, we're going to be talking in the book of Ephesians quite a bit today. Um, we're going to be looking at this pivotal moment within Ephesians. And if you, if you turn um, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we'll read right at the beginning. It says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. You see that? Therefore, this is like the, the, the pivot moment. Like if you can imagine um, like a door, you know, swinging open and it's like we're on the other side of the door. Um, Paul in the first three chapters of Ephesians um, has, has, has been telling us 
about the gospel. He's been explaining it. He's been explaining Christ's death and, and how it saves us and showing us how God is forming a new multi-ethnic family that is not is no longer just Jews, but is, is everyone is grafted into this new family um, that that God is creating. And that's what the first three chapters have been about. And the last three, four through six, now Paul is going to to show us what it looks like when, when we live that gospel out in our lives. Paul's going to get really specific in these next couple of chapters. He's going to talk about, um, he's going to address anger. He's going he's gonna to talk about sex. He's going to talk about parenting. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about lying and money. And, and, and Paul's going to kind of like get, get, in our business in these, in these last three chapters. He's going to talk about everything. And, and some people will read this, and, and it'll just kind of be a laundry list of things to do or, or whatever. And, and people will read this, and some, some will think that this is Paul at his worst. Like, Paul is just being a helicopter parent, you know, like telling you what you can and can't do for every single situation. But I don't think that's, that's what Paul's doing. Paul, as he writes this, has a core conviction. He's convinced that the behavior of people, what we do, is just the surface reaction to what is going on deep within, inside us. And Paul believes if we can address that core, if we can address what is at the center of that, the behavior will fix itself. And Paul believes that our behavior flows out of who you think you are. It comes from your identity. And so we're going to move on. In, in, in uh, Ephesians 4, 17, Paul says this. This is going to be our main passage for today. Uh, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, we're going to pause here for a second because there's something really profound here that we might just miss, you know, if we're just reading through it quickly. A a little bit of background, um, and what's cool about the the book of Ephesians to me is most of Paul's letter, his epistles to to the church, a lot of them were to a specific church, you know, like so— uh, you know, Philippians to the church in Philippi or Corinthians to the church in Corinth. And, and he'd be addressing this certain church and usually for a specific reason. Like Paul heard that they were doing something crazy and he's like, what? You know, and he's like, give me my pen. You know, and he's writing out a, a letter to send to them. But but the the Ephesians, like the, the letter to the Ephesians actually isn't to just the church in Ephesus. It's, it's what we call a circular letter. And, and this was like the first church in Asia Minor. But Paul sent it to, to this church to be passed around to all the churches around there. And so in a very real sense, it's not like a specific thing to one church, but it's to, to all those churches. And so as we read it, like this, it stands out to me that this is like Paul's letter to us, the, the church of God, the, the church in general. And so um, I want to look at this line you, you, that you, know, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, how many of you guys have used the word Gentile in the last week? Good. Okay, good, good, good. I was hoping that'd be like a weird thing to use in casual conversation, you know, like 
me describing my wife, you know, uh, she's kind of short, you know, blonde hair, Gentile, you know, that would be like, not right, you know, so that's good. That's good. I'm glad. Um, it simply means not Jewish, like it's, it's a, it's an ethnic category. And so what's weird about this passage is, is Paul is saying that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And the church, all these churches in Asia Minor that Paul would have been writing to, they were, they were not Jewish churches, right? They were Gentiles. So as Paul, like, you know, has he had like a momentary lapse? He's like, has he forgotten, you know, who, who he was writing to? And it can't be that. Because in, in, in three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake, sake of you Gentiles. Okay, so he knows. And then back chapter 2, verse 11, again he says, Therefore remember that you are formerly uh, who you are, Gentiles by birth. Okay, so Paul seems to know who he's talking to. And And... Or maybe, you know, this, this, the word that is used for no longer live as Gentiles, like, literally means walk, you know. So is he telling them don't walk like Gentiles? You know, like, you walk kind of funny. You should stop that. I don't think that's, that's what he's getting at. And this would be, like, a lot like if I was standing here saying, no longer live as Oklahomans do, right? How many of you, like, identify as an Oklahoman? Or how many of you have another state that you're like, I live here, but I'm not an Oklahoman, right? There's some, yeah, like, and, and so, you know, you might be like, I'm from Texas, so don't, don't worry about it. Or, you know, me, I, I claim Minnesota all the time, you know, and, and so I'd be like, that's fine, you know, but, but what if it was your state? No longer live as the Texans. Can, can I get an amen for that? Um, and, uh, Paul is not addressing the ethnicity of people, but he is addressing our identity. What do you identify as? What is your core identifier? You know, for me, like, I know you guys probably noticed this. I wear a Minnesota Twins baseball cap, like, 50% of my waking hours. Like, I'm like... Did I shower today? Nope. Twins hat. Like that's how, how it works in my life, and um, and that like I I mean I like the Twins. I'm not like a super fan or whatever. But just of all the Minnesota sports teams, they're the only ones that have ever won a championship ever. You know, so I'm like they're the best. You know, they haven't done that in uh, 27 years or something like that. But you know, so I still just because because a little bit of my identity is like wrapped up in that. You guys understand that. What Paul is, is laying out in, in the first three chapters and what he's been talking about is that in the gospel, through, through Jesus Christ, we have a new identity. An identity that's not based on our nationality or our family or our past or our experiences. An identity that is solely based on Christ and what he did for us. And so you are new humans that's what he's saying to us. He's saying, Gentiles, you're not Gentiles anymore. Or Oklahomans, you're not Oklahomans anymore. Or Americans, you're not Americans. You can think of it this way. You, rather than thinking of yourself as an American who happens to be Christian, it should be the other way around. You are a Christian 
who happens to be American. Because our identity in Christ is not wrapped up in our, in our nationality or where we live. God is, Jesus sent his son to create a new family so that we could all be grafted into this one unifying church wherever we live or whatever we look like. And so I want to make sure we get this right and we understand this because the outside world often sees Christians as, as moral police, as people with a strict set of rules um, and, and, and judging people. And Paul would have a big problem uh, because he would say being a Christian is not about behavioral modification. It's not about changing what you do, but it's about genuine change that comes from Christ. Our behavior follows our identity change, not the other way around. And so I wanted to help illustrate this point. I want to talk about this uh, woman named Crystal Jones. You can put a picture up of her. Um, Crystal Jones, she, she was a part, for, uh, part of a Teach for America program. For those of you who don't know, Teach for America is a program that um, places college graduates in classrooms, whether they have an education degree or not. And, 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 and what they do is they help pay back those college loans in exchange for teaching at like lower income or underprivileged schools, schools that can't have a hard time filling the classroom with, with any teachers at all. And so uh, Crystal Jones, she got placed in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, she got placed with a bunch of first graders. And in this particular school, they had no kindergarten before first grade. So for most of these kids, this was their first time in a class. And, and I'm going to read what, what Crystal how she describes um, where they're at. At the beginning of the year, I had two or three students that could recognize kindergarten sight words like dog or cat. I also had some who didn't even know how to hold a pencil or even a book the right way up. For some of them, their behavior just wasn't where it needed to be for the classrooms. And I had students who didn't even know their alphabet or their numbers. They were all on different levels and no one was where they needed to be for first grade. So imagine yourself in this situation. How would you even begin to teach first grade? You know, when you have ki you know, some kids that can read a tiny bit, um, but, but other kids that don't even know numbers or letters or, or how to hold a book the right way up. And I'm like, if that was me and I got placed in that, I feel like I might have just been like, I'm just going to pay my college loan, so like I can't do this, you know. How, how am I supposed to do this? And so what Crystal did was she thought about the psychology of a first grader. What do first graders want to be like? Well, if you've like ever watched kids or, you know, watched kids play on the playground or anything, you, you, you might know something about them. Like I have a, a daughter who's almost three, and... Um, the coolest person to her in this whole church uh, would, would have to be uh, Kevin, Kevin and Lindsay's daughter, Rayleigh. Probably for the sole fact that she's five years old. You know? Like, I, you, I could be like, you know, if you're 10, no. You know, if you're 15, 20, 30, any adults, not cool. Kids less than her, she's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm good. But 
But a five-year-old to my daughter is like, I will do whatever you do, no matter what. Like, I'll follow you. I'll act like you. You know, like, Rayleigh, like, has this awesome, like, sassy, pouty face that she does. Like, you know, and, and Everly has totally, like, picked that up. And it's like, whoa, Rayleigh. You know, like, I see Rayleigh when she does it. And, and if you've ever, like, watched kids on a playground or something, you know, you notice this. Like, who's the coolest person? Like, it's like two years older than them. So Crystal uh, decided to harness this desire for first graders to want to be third graders. And so on the first day of class, she said, I'm Mrs. Jones, I'm your teacher, and I'm going to turn you all into third graders. And they're like, ooh, you know, like got their attention. Third graders, they say. And she, she started to challenge them. She was like, can, can third graders run faster than you guys? And they're like, no, no. And then some of them, you know, conceded, like, yeah, yeah well, yeah, probably, you know. She's like, can they, can they read better? Yeah. Can third graders do math better? Yeah, yeah. I guess so. She was like, they can, but, but not for long, because I'm going to turn you all into third graders. And she shaped her curriculum around becoming a third grader. You know, she, like, labeled the tests and quizzes and homework as, like, third grade prep, like, homework and stuff. And, and she, she, she had all the kids address each other as scholar and then their last name. So, like, Scholar Ekblad or Scholar Griffin, you know, will you hand me that pencil or whatever. And, and she created this culture where everyone called each other uh, scholar and whenever someone visited her classroom, she would introduce the whole class as, this is my, my um, class of budding third-grade scholars. And she created a definition, and they recited it every morning when they got to school. They would say, a scholar is someone who lives to learn and is really good at it. And they would say this every day. And, 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 and she just started, uh, you know helping each child to identify themselves as a scholar and as a third grader. And they got really excited about it. And she said, uh, by, by November, just, just after Halloween, she said she knew that she had them. She knew that she had them. And, and kids, kids were like, they would be sad if they had to miss, like if they had a doctor's appointment or something, they would be like, no, am I going to become a third grader? Like if they missed one day and, and they were like, they were like, I have to be at school. I have to like learn. I'm going to become a third grader. And they were so excited about it. And she said in March, when they took their first grade reading comprehension test, all of them passed every single one of them. And, and for some kids, this was like good progress, right? But for some kids, it was an outright miracle. These kids didn't even know letters th six months before. And now they can read at a first grade letter. See, Crystal, she made a decision about them. She decided that they were going to be third graders, whether they liked it or not. She said, you are going to be a third grader. I don't care what your past or your history is or where you're at. You're going to become a third grader. And then she created a community that enforced that decision. Not only was she saying it, but everyone else around them was, was saying that and believing that. And so Paul, 
as we come back to Ephesians, this is what Paul's doing. He is convinced that how we view ourselves changes the way we act. That behavior follows identity. So let's go back to our passage. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Paul is saying that this is what, this is what the old identity leads to. This, this phrase, having lost all sensitivity, other, other translations will say, uh, having become callous, right? How many, how many of you have, like, ever played guitar or attempted to learn guitar or whatever? You know about, like, the callous, right? That it, it's super painful at first, you know? And even I, like, uh, you know, I used to play a lot more acoustic, and now I'm playing more electric. And now when I play acoustic for, like, four songs, I'm like, my hands are dying. Like, I just feel it, like, big time, you know. Or how many of you, like, uh, at your house, like, shoes are optional, like, even outside. Like, that's how it is at our house. Um, I only put shoes on, like, to leave the house. And same for our kids. Like, I'm like, you can go outside without shoes, until we get in the van, and then you need to have shoes on, or whatever. So even even Emerson, she has, like, these cute little one-year-old baby feet, but they're, like, calloused on the bottom, you know, and they're, like, tough. And I'm just imagining, you know, like, if you were to, you know, be used to calluses, and then they were gone, and you, like, walk outside, and you, like, step on a pebble, and you're like, oh, you know, it would hurt, right? Because cause we build up this tough skin that, 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 uh, that, shields us from from feeling pain and protects us but have you ever like you know heard of like a heinous crime that you just can't even fathom how someone would do that or commit that or you you see them do it and then you see a picture of them or interview or in court or whatever and there's just there isn't even like remorse and you think to yourself how how can someone be like that it, Paul, Paul is saying that this is what sin is like. It makes us callous. The more we do it, the less we feel it. And so Paul is describing the old way of life, the, the, the old way, the way we used to be. But then he goes on in verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life that you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance to, to the, with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught to regard your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in righteousness and holiness." Paul, 100% with all his being, believes that we are new humans, that we are new beings, that when we heard and were taught about the truth of God and Jesus, that we were fundamentally 
changed. And, and so even, even in the way you think of, of baptism, you know, sometimes we think of baptism as like a nice little ceremony, but I think for Paul, he would take that very, very seriously and think about his, when you go under the water, that is your old self dying. And when you come up, that is a new creation made in Christ Jesus. And that is who you are now. Not your old self, not your past, not the stuff that happened before. No, no, no. You, you are a child of God. And God sees you that way. And for some of us, we've, we've grown up or maybe we've come to think of God as like this first grade reading comprehension test, right? Like God is, God is this judge that, you know, will, will check us, you know, and, and, and if we're good enough, we'll, we'll get into heaven. And, but God is a whole lot more like, like that teacher, like Crystal, than he is a test. God will do anything to make sure that, that, that we become the children that, that he desires for us to be, that he made us. And yeah, you know, sometimes we, we, you know, we slip up, but that's not who we are anymore. That's not our core identifier. We are not identified by our sin, but we're identified by what, by what God did for us. You are a child of God. And nothing, God will stop at nothing to fulfill that. I want to I wanna go on to verse 25. And we're going to look at just the next couple of verses, but I want you to see this is this is a preview of what the rest of Ephesians is really going to look like. And this is what I said before, you know, some people would view this as nagging or a list of of rules or things to do, but that's not how Paul intends it. Paul is intending for us to to see that this is who we are now. This is we we used to do these things, but but that is not our core identity. So he says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in needs. This is the lifestyle that follows identity change. It's not a list of behavior modifications. It is, it is who we are. So, so when Paul is speaking to us and, and to you, and he's saying, you, you are not a liar. You are someone who speaks truth and life. Or you are not an angry person. You are filled with the peace and loving kindness of Christ. And you are not someone who steals, but you are someone who has something to give. That is who you are now. And so, you know, you might lie, right? You might have that happen. But Paul's saying, well, why are you doing that? That's not who you are anymore. He's calling you to be who you are. So we have a little bit of homework this week in summer school. The first thing is we need 
to see ourselves as a new creation. We need to take this seriously in our lives. If you just say that's a nice thought or whatever, it will have no impact on your life. But if you take this seriously and you think of yourself as a new creation with Christ living in you, as a new being that is fundamentally different from, from the you that was before Christ entered your life, you'll be empowered to live the life that God wants you to. Just like those kids in first grade, they were able to do that, but it was only once someone called them by their true identity that they were able to. And so you need to think of yourself. You need to begin developing habits where you take this seriously. And the Bible says, he who the sun sets free is free indeed. It's not he who who the sun sets free is working on it and will get better later, right? So So often that's the attitude that we have, like, God has entered my life, but, you know, but I'm trying my best, you know. That's not... That's not the life that God has called you to. He has called you free, and you are free. And you have the ability to to live in that freedom. And you just have to open your ears and and read the word enough to, to hear God calling you his child and recognize who you are in Christ Jesus. The second thing that we need to do, second second homework is, we need to validate each other as new beings. We need to validate each other as new creations. Now, I, I could preach about this all day, but if you leave this place and you go home or you go to work or whatever, and you have 10 other voices telling you that you're not created in God's image, maybe calling you a turd, I don't know. It, it, it won't do any good. If, if we are not reinforcing that together. Because what did Crystal do, right? She, she, called, them, she called them third graders, but then she, she also created an environment in which every student was working together to help each other, to call them to their true identity as scholars, not as, oh, you're dumb or you're stupid or you don't know how to read or whatever. No, no, as, as scholars. And so we too have to have this attitude where we call each other to our true identity in Christ. You are a child of God. You have infinite worth and value to God. That's why we, we have to have zero tolerance for gossip because gossip is just the opposite. Gossip is, you know, well, he's pretty dumb. Why did he do that? You know, and tearing each other down. That is not going to 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 help each other we the church must be an affirming and uplifting place it must be an affirming and uplifting community it needs to go far beyond a a a 50-minute session on sunday morning it needs to be our whole life that we identify ourselves as child of god now does that mean you know that that you know that we just do whatever No, no no that means like when someone is, is having a hard time with someone, something, we, we lift them up. We say, that's not who you are anymore. You are a child of God. You are loved. And we lift each other up and build each other. And not if, but when we do this, we will see miraculous growth in each other. And we will praise 
the Lord all the more. Why don't you stand with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the work that you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that we are new beings, that we are new creation, that we are made in your likeness, and that you call us worthy and that you call us loved and you call us your children, God. God, I pray for anyone in this room that is struggling with this idea, that they don't feel that they are worthy, that they don't feel like they are capable. God, I pray that you would uh, speak to them, God, that they would, they would feel your presence, that they would hear your voice as you tell them that you love them, that they have infinite worth, and that they were worth you sending your son and dying for them. And God, I pray for us as a community uh, of believers. God, I pray that you would just put in us the, the recognition, God, that, that we would look across this room and we would see children of God, God, that we, we would see people with infinite value and that we would be able to speak into each other's lives, into each other's hearts, that we would be able to lift them up, God, that we would be able to call them into their true identity and that we as a church body would be able to live out the life that you have called for us, God, that we would live out the walk that you have called for us, that we would look like the church that you desire for us to look like as we embody this identity that you have given us, God. That would not be an arduous task, God, that would not be difficult, but it would be natural as breathing, God, that it would just become who we are, that we are a people of love, that we are a people of kindness, that we are a people of peace, that we are a people of joy, God, because that is the identity that you have given us. We worship you and praise you, and we give it all to you. In your name I pray, amen, amen. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we close each service with a time of giving. So I'm going to invite our uh, ushers to come forward to the front of the stage. And if you are here with